You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Now, it's that time of year where we are trying to organize and prep and plan for the upcoming season. And some of the gear that we use takes batteries. Now, you should go visit your local Interstate Battery store or visit interstatebatteries.com to check out all the different varieties of batteries that they offer. They have truck batteries they have batteries for your trail cameras they have batteries for your rangefinder and everything else that is electronic that you use for your hunting equipment they have batteries for that interstatebatteries.com awesome company check them out hey guys welcome to land and legacy podcast this is your host adam keith we're co-owners of a consulting company called go figure land and legacy this is your number one podcast resource for all things land each week, we're breaking down topics from land management, habitat management, conservation, farming practices, and real estate. We hope you guys enjoy it. Hey guys, you're really going to enjoy this week's podcast. We've got a special guest coming on that's doing some amazing work. He's got a great organization and a great thing going on. Matt and I just absolutely love his work and following along, so we encourage you guys to do the same. First introduced to this guy's work, oh gosh, over a year ago, and uh, ever since then, it's just like, this guy gets it, when can we get him on the podcast? So we're very thankful to have him on. Um, Mr. Dr. Dwayne Esses, how you doing this morning? Hey, I'm good, guys. Thank you all for having me. It's a pleasure. Oh, so, so grateful for you to be here. And you're a man who wears, like us, wears several different hats. And when we get asked this question, it's it's kind of hard for us to even explain. Pin it down to one thing, like, what do we do? So I'm going to ask you, what what hats or what exactly would you say when somebody asks, what's your title? Yeah, that, that is hard to answer sometimes. Um, yeah, my title is the executive director for the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative, and uh, that's probably the one that's that's most applicable to what I do on a daily basis. But I'm also a professor of biology at Austin P. State University. So those are the two main hats I wear right there. So with that, what is, for our audience, Southeastern Grasslands Initiative? Yeah, it, we're a new conservation organization. Uh, we're based out of uh, Austin P, where where I'm located, which is in Clarksville, Tennessee. It's about uh, 45 minutes northwest of Nashville, and uh, we've been around now about two years, a little, little give or take there. Uh, and our focus is on really promoting the uh, 
greatly enhance conservation and awareness of southeastern United States open landscapes. And, and when we say that, basically we're talking about a, a multitude of different types of grasslands uh, and even open grassy woodland. And uh, the reason we're focused on that is because the loss of those landscapes uh, is one of the greatest, if not the greatest threat facing the terrestrial biodiversity of eastern North America right now. But yet, at the same time, it's also one of the um, one of the things that's least on everybody's radar is just how important those are. So that's what really SGI is focused on is is uh, heightening that awareness, doing something about it on the ground. And we're also trying to really garner uh, a, a lot of new resources to come to the table uh, that can be dedicated toward grass and conservation that not just we can uh, have access to, but the entire southeastern grasslands uh, conservation community can access. So we want to really basically um, greatly increase the pot of resources and funding that's available towards those, uh, those lands. So what is it about the southeastern grasslands that has just captivated you from, I'm sure you've studied them uh, with all your knowledge on them for, for many, many years, but what is it about them that has just captivated you and allowed you to kind of fueled you to lead this charge of starting the uh, organization? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, I grew up in the hills of southern Middle Tennessee, and uh, I grew up in an area that's probably always has been forested. So, you know, I definitely kind of come from a forest, you know, background, if you will, in terms of what I what I was used to growing up. But I think uh, when I started really uh, getting exposed to different types of grassland habitats like pine savannas and uh, limestone glades and, and small, you know, prairie remnants, I was just immediately hit by how much more diversity is packed into small places. You know, a lot of our grasses in the south today, at least, are small. They used to, some of them used to be quite large. But you know, when you go into a forest, obviously the diversity and there's that sense of feeling about the big trees and the shade and the dappled sunlight. That I mean, I think everybody loves loves being in a forested have you know forested habitats. But when you get out in these open grasslands, it's you start to see plants you would never see anywhere else. Then uh, sometimes they're really uncommon or they may be what we call endemic only occur in those habitats uh, but there's also just just tons of biodiversity packed into small places and i think that's what's really cool mm. agreed yeah <laughs> that definitely and I, I, similar story for me grow up grew, grew up in the ozark mountains very forested area uh first glades i i ever saw was like Whew, this is this is cool. This is different. Then got to work with a conservation organization on those glady areas, uh, and then that just transpired into prairies and all kinds of other great uh, ecosystems. Well, I, I, and, I think once you're captivated and understand the diversity of these areas, it's hard to turn away from them and look at other resources. Not that they're not important, have their place, but it's it's tough not to be like, wow, that that thing's just a little bit more superior um, and, than others because of the diversity and because of the sensitiveness of them or now, unfortunately, the lack or presence of them across the landscape. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. The other, the other thing that kind of struck me was um, particularly the ones I started visiting early on uh, near Nashville is how many plants that once you left about a 50 mile radius area, the nearest populations that you'd have to go to see them would be in Southern Missouri. So they would jump completely over West Tennessee and, Wow. Eastern Missouri and Eastern Arkansas, and you'd have to go all the way 
to the to the Dolomite Glades of Southwest Missouri until you find them again. So you know, seeing those kind of long range disjunctions uh, really just started, you know, leading me down to appreciating them that these are these are cool communities with a with a neat story to tell. Absolutely. So you you kind of briefly touched on a bunch of different grasslands in the southeast. Um, and how they vanished or how they were there pre-settlement. What, what are those grasslands today? Or I guess they don't probably look anything like a grassland, but what did they get trans, uh, I guess, transformed, transformed into? Yeah, I think, you know, what they were previously is something special, right? And so, you know, uh, we had a variety of types of, um, of open treeless grasslands, uh, particularly on the western and sort of northwestern edges of our range, which um, are the region of focus for us. It covers 23 states. So we're talking about from about Columbia, Missouri to Philadelphia, all the way down to Miami and Corpus Christi, Texas. So it's a, it's a big chunk of the southeast plus some of the lower Midwest and a little bit of the mid-Atlantic regions. And within that area, you know, you had everything from uh, treeless grasslands, uh, prairies that covered, you know, a couple million acres, uh, extensive pine savannas and oak savannas. Uh, those are kind of the biggest types of grasslands. And then you had a bunch of naturally small, small type grasslands like uh, rocky glades and rocky barrens and variety uh, open types of wetlands. And so today, you know, what we what we see are just fragments of of that. Uh, grasslandy past, if you want to call it that. You know, you, you may not, not have, like here in Tennessee and Kentucky, we had a prairie that was 3.7 million acres in size. It was a prairie and savanna together. And today we've lost 99% of that. So if you mm. want to see a ring, you either got to go to an army base that's nearby or uh, where you can't because of security issues, um, or you need to go to a couple of roadsides where there's a, there's a little bit of prairie that's sandwiched between a highway and an adjacent railroad, and it's 30 feet wide, and it's mowed about five times a year. So you'd be lucky oh, if you wow. even can tell that it's a prairie as you drive by it. Wow. And that's that's down from an area that was the size of Connecticut and Rhode Island at one time combined. Wow. Do you – you bring up an interesting point. We see – of course, Matt and I in the consulting real estate, we see a lot of road – uh, road time and we see a lot of really cool native plants and uh, along the medians and sides of the roads but it seems like there's this constant mowing that has opened up the table or opened up the the canvas for some sort of noxious invasive species to join and i know i've seen it on your social media page where you see it, you talk about a lot of remnant grasslands uh, along those areas do you see this pretty common throughout the southeast of remnant remnant prairies throughout the medians and roadways yeah absolutely in particular regions especially and and um you know we we see them like some of the key areas i could think of where you can find the best remnants um the, the missouri ozarks obviously would be one uh, the washita mountains of southwest arkansas would be another region you'd, you'd see a lot of that um as you move Eastward, we're beginning to see a lot of those uh, roadside remnants beginning to be knocked back, either by too frequent mowing or, in a lot of cases now, herbicide application is, is a huge issue. Hmm. Uh, but, yeah, you can still go and – I mean, there's actually um, – I say that, but at the same time, there's a big initiative going on over in the Piedmont region uh, around 
Raleigh and Charlotte, North Carolina, where they're they're uh, documenting roadside remnants over there. Mm, and they're finding cool. some tremendous diversity right there on that 20 foot wide swath that borders borders these these roads. So those 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 are oftentimes sort of the last areas now where you know they're sandwiched between a highway and maybe some farmer's field and for whatever reason they've escaped for decades without being grazed or or mowed or uh, or grazed or farmed and now now that they're sandwiched there they're either being mowed too frequently or sprayed with herbicides so hmm. they definitely need our recognition and our help where we can get it you know i i think there's a it's just kind of human nature. Everyone wants to point a finger and say, oh, that's the blame. That's the reason why this happened. But obviously, over 200, you know, 200 years of settlement and colonization, there's a lot of things that happened that we lost this landscape. Just quickly review some of those things that people are, oh, okay, that's, that's why I may not have that in my area anymore. Maybe the land use types, things like that. Yeah, the... Um... You know the the grasslands of the greater southeast. We we believe they covered um, in excess of 110 million acres, and you know there's, there's a variety of variety of reasons for that we can get into later. But essentially, the biggest types of those grasslands were savannas uh, first and foremost, followed by prairies. And um, savannas alone probably accounted for about 100 million acres of that 110 total, and um, but the prairies and savannas, which were the largest types of grasslands that were just, I mean, ubiquitous in some areas across the South, you know, in say 1600 or 1700, you know, places like, as I mentioned, Raleigh and Charlotte, North Carolina, I mean, they're as much a grassland region of, of the United States as is uh, Oklahoma City. But people don't look at it that way anymore because those grasslands have been gone now. There's a great quote that was published in the early 1800s by a historian out of Charlotte, and he talked about the region around Charlotte, North Carolina, and he says that basically in the early days of this of this land, when the first people started coming, you know, into central North Carolina from the Atlantic coast, he said this area was covered with tall grass between all these river corridors. He said between the Yadkin and the Catawba rivers were there was waving sea of grass and there were little tiny cabins that were based, they were kind of housed or situated on the borders of these large cane breaks. And he said, but by the year 1750, they had already been converted to quote thrifty forest. And I think that's just so telling. Wow. That's 26 years before our nation was founded. Those big extensive grasslands over there in the Carolinas had already been lost. Wow. And so, uh, sort of getting back to it then, our prairies and savannas have had two large fates. A lot of the prairies occur in sort of really, you know, what we think of as arable landscapes. They've got good fertile soils. Most of them have become the agricultural fields that we see today across many parts of the South. But on the other hand, savannas tended to be more associated with more infertile soils, a little bit more rocky to rolling landscapes or sandy landscapes. And um, they burn frequently. But as settlers moved in, fires stop burning as frequently and many of those areas became very thick and overgrown very quickly so in a lot of areas of the south where we have dense forest today they used to be open savannas so fire suppression has led to forest cover uh, and those that had fertile soils became agricultural fields and after 200 plus years uh, there's very few signs that the average person would, would be able to look at and say oh yeah 
that used to be that used to be grassland. And so we're trying to open their eyes back up to what those clues are to help read the landscape. Wow, that's you. We we just might as well just all jump in right here because it may be the remainder of the podcast. Who knows? But <laughs> you start talking historical landscapes. Yep. And you've you've perked. I, I guess that's that's something I nerd out big time on. And and I know you talk a lot about the myth of the squirrel. You mm-hmm. want to you want to divulge and 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 tell our audience what that what that looks like. Yeah, um, you know one thing I I refer to this myth of the squirrel. And for me, it it started when I was in the sixth grade. I had a class called Tennessee History. And a teacher of mine named Tommy Johns, he um, always kind of start a lot of my talks this way. You know, two things I learned from Tommy Johns. One was he paddled me 13 times in the sixth grade for talking too much. <laughs> and uh, But the only academic thing I really seem to latch on to is how he told this story about how at the time the first Europeans got to eastern North America that the, the landscape was so densely forested over a broad swath that a squirrel could travel from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi River without touching the ground, just going through the canopy. And, you know, growing up in the hills of southern Middle Tennessee, where, you know, I'd get home from school every day and go back into the woods and sit at the base of a giant basswood tree or red oak, it was easy to visualize, you know, how that area once was forested and how that squirrel could have done that. And um, I've since come to learn after especially over the past two years after talking to about 90 times to about 8,000 different people um, I usually try to poll the audiences when I when I speak and I would say at least on average somewhere between 50 and 80 percent of of the crowd has heard the same myth of this squirrel And, and I tell you it seems relatively harmless I mean I think we all know that there was it never was there a single squirrel that made that journey but that tale has had so much adverse um, implications for conservation in the east we haven't even really begun to truly understand uh, the damage that it has done at least in the public eye as to how we view the landscape and how we view conservation and how we view what's important to preserve or to restore and so we're trying to overturn some of that by helping to tell in an accurate fashion, uh, if you will, really trying to retell American history because this story is just as pertinent to our cultural story of American history as it is to the conservation story uh, here in the eastern U.S. Mm. Yeah, no doubt. Talking a little bit about understanding that that it wasn't that way, that the squirrel couldn't go from treetop from the Atlantic to the Mississippi River, what are some of the tools and techniques you've used to try to debunk that to where you can look back and say it wasn't that way? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's astonishing, actually, as we get to looking back through the uh, historical record, we're trying to figure out when did that myth take root. But I can at least say this. Um, um, former President Teddy Roosevelt uh, published a series of books. I think it was called The Taming of the West. And um, this was back in the early 20th century. And, and in it, he's, he's remarking about an area specifically uh, between Knoxville, Tennessee and, and Bristol, Tennessee, kind of just north of Great Smoky Mountains mm-hmm. National Park. And uh, he, he's talking about that area and he alludes to this once vast, great big forest. Right. And this is Teddy Roosevelt, you know, huge conservationist. 
But in it, he says, oh, yeah, this was all forested historically. The first settlers came through. They chopped it down. And then um, later on, there's another piece that's written by someone else who's really familiar with that region. He says, wait a minute, Teddy Roosevelt, you're all wrong. You're sitting here over-extrapolating and talking about how dense these forests were, but basically he's pointing out you've forgotten your history, that the earliest writings from this area that uh, would have originated as far back as the Hernando de Soto expedition in 1540 and the early some of the, the really thorough writings, say, from the 1770s and 1780s up to about 1800, they don't talk it at all about dense forests. They talk about open, extensive savannas. And so somehow between the early 1800s and like the era of Teddy Roosevelt, you know, in the 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, this this concept of dense forest took hold. And then throughout the 20th century, it was further propagated until people like Tommy Johns taught me about it in 1990. And so there's a lot of reasons why now we, we can... We have to look at history. I'll just take a break there and say that. We have to look back at early history. And there's a lot of different sources we can look to now that unequivocally point to the fact that there were lots of grasslands in a lot of different places. Uh, that's kind of a little bit long-winded, but I can tell you about some of those forms of evidence we look to um, yeah, to, to understand that. For sure. For us here in the Ozarks, we, we can look at uh, Henry Schoolcraft, who came through in 1818, 1819, and in his journal, I mean, it's clear that what he saw isn't the landscape you see today. And I'm sure it's the same way with some of the eastern explorations that, that uh, I would love for you to talk about some of your favorites and, and what they saw. Yeah, I think one of my favorites is um, is early maps. You know, you've got early maps, you've got some early quotes. Um, well, let me, let me just start with a quote. I think that those are the richest ones. Those are the most descriptive, right? Yeah. Um, uh, the um, where I'm sitting right now talking to you guys, if I look over to my right, I'm going to sort of conjure up some some uh, something to help me with this. There's a grove of trees that's about a tenth of a mile away, and under that grove of trees is a guy that's buried there who was born in 1776 in eastern North Carolina. And in about 1800, uh, 1806, he ended up making the journey west into Tennessee with his family. A guy's name is Reuben Ross, and he is uh, was an early circuit preacher in this area. He ended up dying in 1860, but during his lifetime, he saw incredible change. When he first got here, later on in life, he wrote about the land as it looked then, and he said, "quote It would be difficult to imagine anything more beautiful. For as far as the eye could reach, they seemed one vast, deep green meadow, adorned with countless flowers springing up in all directions." Only a solitary tree, now and then a post oak, were to be seen. He said, it was here I first saw the prairie bird, or the barren hen, as we called it, which I afterwards met with in such vast numbers on the great prairies of Illinois. It was here that the wild strawberries grew in such profusion as to stain the horse's hooves a deep red color. I mean, th those kind of quotes talking about strawberries and endless fields of wildflowers and meadows is just is so captivating. Mm -hmm. yeah. But yet... If you'd come back to that same land today as I'm looking at it, I'm looking out, I see cornfields, I see, uh, you know, thickets, and I see areas of extensive forest, none of which would have been here in Reuben Ross's day. Now, mm. we can, we can, 
we can add to that then these old maps that are uh, in various places. There's one from 1720, which I absolutely love. It shows this same region. It says Savannah land and good pasture ground over it. <laughs> That's uh, cool. But there's some pretty innovative ways, too, that I can tell you about that, that, that is coming around nowadays with technology that's allowing us to look back. Wow. Uh, some of those are pretty cool. Yeah, and I, I think I've heard you speak on some of the early surveys, too, and using that mm-hmm. information to put together kind of what these landscape um, looked like. Could you cover a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, if you were in, say, Missouri or Arkansas, you know, at the you know, after the Louisiana Purchase was made, you know, they hired surveys to go out and, and survey basically every, um, they did a grid system of every one mile. And as the surveyors walked those grid lines, they would record what the vegetation was like along those grid lines. They divided everything into township range and section. And so if they walked across prairies, you know, they would measure it in chains and poles and say it was, this prairie was, you know, 30 chains wide or this prairie was five miles wide, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. But in other parts of the southeast, they didn't have that same system. Uh, like in Tennessee and Kentucky, settlement occurred so rapidly and feverishly that they didn't have time to go in and, and systematically map the land and understand it before people moved there. So right after people like Daniel Boone began to move into Kentucky and, and bring settlers, it just opened up the floodgates and people came in, they began to squat on the land and basically just claimed it for what, you know, whatever they could take. And so soon after, you know, people, uh, surveyors came over and they would just start surveying individual blocks of land. And so, you know, if, if a revolutionary war veteran, for example, was awarded some land for his service, he, he might have a surveyor come over, you know, in the months prior and, and he would go in and lay off a block of land. He would say, you know, started at the northwest corner at a white oak and go south 15 poles to a red oak, east to a stake, and then north to a white oak. And so you can look at things like whether they were documenting post oaks or blackjack oaks mm-hmm. or stakes, as I just said. And, and a stake was when they there was no tree, they had to basically hold the stake or put a stake in the ground. And once you begin to map all those individual lands, you can begin to see the relative abundance of those kinds of trees which I call storyteller species. Uh, post oaks and blackjack oaks are pretty much savanna dependent species for the most part. And uh, when you see a high incidence of those or, or a high density of stakes, then that's a way to kind of understand that that landscape was pretty open. Um, yeah, those early surveys are really critical. And there's finally I'll say is that, um, you know, some of the surveys were linear, like state line boundaries. When they laid out the state line between Kentucky and Tennessee, uh, in 1779, when they got to a specific place just north of Nashville, they said, now we enter the Barrens. And they mm. didn't really even des- describe another feature for 120 miles. Oh, wow. Because the prairies lasted, they were they were 120 miles long until they got to the other side. And they said, here we enter the Barrens, we stayed in them all the way till we got to within three miles of the, of the Cumberland River. So... Those there's some really important clues in history that just have been lost to the American people that we're still trying to dig up and bring back. So that begs the question then someone's out there, okay, yeah, I understand. You've got me convinced that the landscape was different. But what's the ecological significance of it? You know, we're we're living here now, um, things have changed, we're using the land differently, but what's the significance of that type of landscape and why is it important to us now? 
That's a great question. The significance is that um, a huge proportion of southeastern biodiversity, both plants and animals, uh, is is specifically tied to those landscapes. And you just ask, you know, just imagine what would happen if you took, um, let's say you take Great Smoky Mountains National Park and you cut down 95% of the forest of, of, a, of a park that was, you know, covered historically roughly a half million acres, probably 99% of it was forested anyway. What, what would happen if you cut down 95% of the forest? Well, you'd have massive implications for those forest dwelling organisms, uh, forest birds and small mammals and salamanders and whatnot. Now go back and let's flip it on its head and look at it from the other direction. What happens when we've taken 95 to 99% of our grassland habitats and we've eliminated them? All of a sudden we have a massive issue on our hands that few people realize. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what we're faced with. We've had that kind of level of loss. And so, you know, if you take 99% of your prairies and you convert them to agricultural fields, those species that need those prairies, American burrowing beetles and Henslow sparrows, they all of a sudden find themselves without a home. But then you can multiply that by a thousand for all the other species or, or more that need that, that no longer have, have habitat. And then it goes beyond just the small creatures that most people don't know the names of, right? If, if you begin to lose all the insect diversity um, from these prairie habitats that rely on the plants that produce either the nectar or the pollen or the seeds that they eat or whatever, uh, or the, the, the leaf materials that they might eat, you're losing a huge amount of that, that small scale animal diversity that the bigger animals need. And uh, one of my colleagues calls them groceries on the ground. And so if you lose the groceries on the ground, then you lose the capacity for higher forms of wildlife to be able to feed and, and thrive in large numbers that, that can ultimately sustain, you know, things like hunting and, and, and so much more. So Disru it's, it's super important. Yeah. Disrupting a massive food chain is what's That's right. occurred. And, and I think it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough. Like you're reading, um, you know, things about the landscape itself, what it looked like. And do you come across, um, I guess, indicator of wildlife species as well in those readings that you're like, wow, you know, they used to be super prevalent here, whether it's songbirds that are just, you know, dominated by grasslands. Um, do you come across things like that? Yeah, that Reuben Ross quote where I said he mentioned the prairie bird or yep. the barren hen, that was a greater prairie chicken. So, you know, we're talking about an area that's about an hour north of Nashville where mm. greater prairie chickens were documented just after 1800. You'd have um, to go a long ways to find greater prairie chickens yeah, from no there. Doubt. You sure would, yeah. I, I guess I'm thinking probably what, northern Missouri or northern Missouri. parts of northern Yeah, Missouri. in western Missouri. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, you know, we had those here, and um, there's lots of references to buffalo in mm -hmm. in the pre-1800 uh, journal writings. Uh you know, it's it's not not unusual to find those at all. Very common. Wow. Um, and elk, I'm elk, sure as well. You know what's weird is elk is is scarcely mentioned in the early writings. Um, it is uh, mentioned, and there are a lot of place names like Elk River and those kind of things. Oh, sure. And I didn't know the reason for that until I was reading. Let me let me give you guys a website. Um, there's a there's a website called uh, just if you Google it, it's called Bluegrass Restoration. Uh, Bluegrass Woodland Restoration Center. Google some combination of that. Anyways, there's an excellent series of 
articles or, or uh, writings that have been put together for this region of Kentucky called the bluegrass. And in it, he begins to describe, uh, Dr. Julian Campbell of Lexington, Kentucky, but begins to describe why buffalo were so important because they, their hides were used as rugs and as robes and every part of the animal was used. Even by the early settlers, they were extensive, not every part, but lots of it was used for meat and all kinds of stuff. And then for deer, it was different because, um, you know, their, their hides were basically worth a dollar. And so, like, when Daniel Boone and others came to hunt, they were hunting a buck because that, that, that hide was worth a buck. It was worth a dollar. But I found out that elk was scarcely used for its hides because its hides were considered undesirable. And so I don't know if that in any way, and, and it was not a preferred food source like deer and buffalo. So there may have been fewer references to it for those reasons. Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, sure is. I think, uh, I think I've heard you talk about too, uh, and I'll tie this in close to home for me, about these place names and mm-hmm. how they relate to what that landscape was. And then, you know, there's things that, you know, Elk Creek that you're like, where, I wonder how it got its name. Or, or Buffalo just north of where we're at right now. Yeah. The town of and, Buffalo. And, you know, Dwayne, uh, the area that my family farm is at is called, and even if you look at old uh, topo maps, you'll see it called Prairie Hollow. And mm. nothing about it looks like prairie, but it's like, what? <laughs> it's in a who, hollow. Who called it this, and why did they call it that? You want to talk a little bit about those those names and how people and in some of your historical research and what you found? Yeah, absolutely. I, I had the same wonderings about how did they get their names, right? Mm-hmm. I think as Americans, we drive and we see uh, the name of a creek as we cross a, a bridge, and we think about, man, Mulberry Creek, you know. I think scarcely do we stop and realize when Mulberry Creek was named, you know, that kind of thing. And so um, I began to get the answer to that uh, just a couple of years ago. There was a brand new set of, of books that were published by three historians here in Nashville who had collectively worked about 30 years each of digging through all of the um, Revolutionary War era land grant surveys covering the period from 1789 to 1804. And they had to go to the archives in, in Nashville, Tennessee, and also back in North Carolina, because Tennessee used to be a part of that state, to get all these records, right? And so what they're looking up is these individual land surveys that were given to a, a, a Revolutionary War veteran for his, his service in the war. And as they did, they transcribed all the original notes, and then they um, took the, the hand sketch of the map, which was still in these archives, and they transposed the map onto topographic maps, modern topographic maps. And so then they began to overlay all this and put them into a book. And they ended up mapping probably somewhere around 15,000 actual lands that they did. And as you go and read an individual entry, like maybe one of them will be from, say, you know, May of 1787. And it gives all the notes about what the original boundary trees were and all those things. Well, the other thing that it does is it has this hand-drawn map. That's the very first survey ever of that property, and in this case, and and that's when they put the names of the creeks on there. It was these early surveyors who named those landscapes that are still with us, 220 years later, in our case, and 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 I just find that that's phenomenal that that has lasted through the course of time, in most cases without a lot of ch- name changing going on. But we do find other areas, however, that. Uh, for example, in northwest Georgia, there was a place called uh, 
it was something like Prairie Valley, right? And it appears on maps from just after the Civil War, but you won't see it on maps today. Today it has changed names to something like Pleasant Valley. And so I think when we look at places like Prairie Grove, Oak Grove, Pleasant View, Fairview, you look deeper and you begin to find a lot of those modern place names, even those that don't sound like it, like Fairview, for example, if that name has been around for more than 150 years, it probably was formerly a grassland region. I think a lot of light bulbs just went off in some people's head yeah. because those are very commonly used areas, um, yeah. you know, descriptive terms for areas, for sure. Wow. Let me tell you about one of my favorites real quick that is connected to technology, which I think is just amazing. Um, there's a site in north, north, sort of uh, northern Tennessee, about an hour and a half northwest of Knoxville, Tennessee, on the Cumberland Plateau, and it's called Tar Kiln Ridge. All right. Well, if from looking at the pine savannas of the deep south, when we talk about uh, the turpentine industry and tar kilns, mm. I mean, the pine savannas were just, you know, heavily used to support the whole industry of naval stores and turpentine production and all that stuff. And so as those pines were eventually logged out, that um, what you find is that there were, there were these kilns that were kind of donut-shaped structures on the ground. And they would, they would uh, you know, they would burn that down and they would get the turpentine out of, out of the pine wood that was burned down. Well, now 200, 300 years later, you know, you can barely, as a trained person, could go out there and recognize a, a kiln location if you were to walk through the woods because it's, it's sort of this low donut-shaped feature mm. that might be out there. The average person would walk by and probably not realize that there's even anything there. But nowadays with LiDAR technology, you know, you can look down and, and it begins to be able to map all that stuff and bring out those individual donuts. And so they've recently tried doing this on out in eastern North Carolina and uh, again, in, in parts of Tennessee, there's a guy named Steve Simone out of North Carolina. And it, it basically penetrates down through the forest canopy. And you can see down to just a few inches of elevation change. And he's been finding that Tar Kiln Ridge is appropriately named because there are all these kilns that are dotting the landscape, these donut-shaped features. And why that's significant is that that whole industry of that region was there because of the extensiveness of the shortleaf pine savannas. And, and, and so there's a remnant there that I think it's really cool where technology has allowed us to be able to see um, these, these structures that we'd never be able to see now. Uh, they're not even visible from, from the air. You can't see through the canopy. Hmm. So uh, Tar Kiln Ridge was a former shortly pine savanna. We wouldn't know it without LiDAR technology. Man, that is neat. That's super cool. Wow. What are some of the projects that you guys are working on right now that come to mind? Um, you know, describe some of those. I think I've seen some things on social media uh, working like sinking lands cattle and then uh, folks out of, um, again, Tennessee, where you're at. But what are, what are some of those projects you, you guys are doing and, and what's the focus of them or goal? Yeah. Yeah. So we've, you know, in our two-year history now, we've, we've uh, grown into projects that cover about, a third of the states that we operate in out of the 23. Um, so we've got um, our projects run, run the gamut from sort of research driven projects, like where we're doing what we call biodiversity exploration. Uh, we've got some cool stuff going on up in, in Appalachia of, of uh, Southeast Kentucky and parts of Tennessee. 
where there are these really deep canyons where the floodwaters maintain grasslands in the bottoms of these canyons. Uh, there's no fire. There's grazing's not probably ever been important here because the ruggedness. But these these floods of these massive, you know, rocky river channels is is keeping these grasslands intact. And because they're so rugged, they've been very difficult to explore. So we're we're exploring those and uh, uh, the, what we call river scour grasslands. That's one big thing we're doing. So that's kind of a research project we're working on. Uh, with Sinking Creek Land and Cattle, it's a 800-acre cattle farm in southwest Virginia. Uh, it's owned by Senator Bill Frist and his wife, Tracy Frist. And uh, we've been partnering with them. Um, you know, they, they have a, a grass-fed beef program there, and they've, they've contacted us and are really interested in, in trying to better manage native grasslands that they have on their, on their place, mostly meadows, and also to restore those. And so, you know, we are excited about that project because it, it, it allows us to do what we'd like to do, which is go out and, and find those remnants on the landscape and then work with them to develop a land management plan to bring those remnants uh, uh, back into a larger state. And I think there's also an excellent potential there uh, to restore those meadows in such a way that they can still be grazed by their cows. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're excited about that. And then we've got a few, uh, several projects for the Forest Service. Uh, we're working with a project we're really excited about in Western Kentucky right now. We're, we're uh, covering about 5,000 acres. It's mostly really super densely fire suppressed oak hickory forest. Looks a lot like what you'd see in the Missouri Ozarks. And uh, all the signatures of former Savannah are there. And we're helping to find those signature species like uh, Goat's Rue and, mm-hmm. and Blazing Stars are still hiding in the forest, basically. And, and to, to help the Forest Service understand the potential for restoring that, that land. Uh, and I guess the last project that I'll just kind of summarize real quick, um, last two projects is we're working with the Tennessee Valley Authority on uh, power line strips that have remnant grasslands mm-hmm. in those to document the uh, those those remaining uh, grasslands and power lines, which some of the best ones we've got are left are in those rights away. So uh, yeah, it's it's a diversity of projects. Uh, we hope to grow in in coming years into in into doing more of the uh, physical restoration efforts. Right now, a lot of our projects, since we're in sort of year one of project implementation, is studying those lands and documenting biodiversity, but the actual restoration will come uh, down in years two and three. Wow. That's very interesting. I almost have to share. I, I got to, don't I? I so, to. Dwayne, talking a little bit about um, my family farm area uh, and, and telling you that it's in the Prairie Hollow is just what everybody in that area knows it as. And and when you look around the landscape, and we, we kind of did a big woodland and, and uh, a big timber thinning recently in the last two years, and you know, you look under the understory next to the gravel roads, you would see goats through, you'd yep. see lead plant, you'd see some of these native grasses. But then once you get back in the shade of the closed canopy forest, you don't see them Diversity hardly at all. Diversity is just gone. And uh, being the, I guess, the nature nerds that we are, Matt, my brother, and myself, we're like, let's thin the timber, let's put some fire back in here, let's see what happens. And we did that. Now we're seeing, oh, man, there's goats through. New Jersey tea. Uh, New Jersey tea. There's some larkspur. Wow. Uh, we recently took a, one of the more glady areas. I think I told you this when we first when we first chatted on the phone a while back, um, that one of these little kind of remnant glades had a bunch of eastern red cedar on it, so we cut the cedar, uh, and then all of a sudden this 
this plant popped up and we're like, I don't know what this is. My brother saw it first. He's like, we got to go look at this because I, I think I see what it might be called, but I don't know. I've never seen it. And we believe it's Baldwin's milk vine, which is like a, it looks like a milkweed bloom, but it's, it's, it's more a vine. of a viney species. The, the, uh, the seed pod looks just like a milkweed, common milkweed seed pod. So really cool stuff and it fits exactly with what you're saying of there's indicators and lots of blackjack in the mm-hmm. area and post oak um even some very, shortleaf pine shortleaf well. pine very wolfy uh, some large wolfy post oaks uh that just it screams to us man this this landscape was not close canopy for us no. so we're in the process of trying to bring it back as well and seeing and that's, those that's signs incredible. yeah Seeing the signs and, and letting those what I call storyteller species, they, if you know where they what they are, they, they can their presence definitely has a deeper story to tell. And you know, as you guys clear those um, those thickets out and, and leave some of those wolfy post oaks and some of the pines, you know, I think what you'll probably find is what people have been finding in some other regions, uh, where you get a, a pretty impressive response either from the rootstock bank or the seed bank. And I didn't quite know how important that was until I started talking with some colleagues with our, uh, our local game agency here in Tennessee, the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency. But uh, they went in and did about a thousand acre um, savanna restoration. But it kind of happened by happenstance when they went into this area. And, um, you know, it was all closed canopy oak hickory forest. Historically, it had a lot of pine in it, it had all been logged out. So when they got it, it was all pretty much closed canopy forest. And so they went in and they, they, they cut this out, cut a lot of that pine out to sort of salvage it. It was going to be completely ruined by southern pine beetle. And after they salvaged timbered this, um, they, they began to put some fire back in on that landscape because the, the historical records suggested these, these areas were covered in savannas. And the, the response from the, the stuff in the ground was just amazing. And it went from an average of about 30 species on the ground in these super fire suppressed forests with heavy oak leaf litter on the ground to more than 300 species after they opened it back up after several years with with numerous fires. And what's really, really cool about that is um, when a lot of stuff started coming back, other agencies almost were, the, some of them were of the opinion that, hey, uh, this game agency has come in and planted all this stuff. That's how vigorous <laughs> the response was. But but the story from the big blue stem alone proved that it wasn't the case because the big blue stem, when it came back, it already had a root. Uh, the crown of the plant at the ground level was probably a foot in diameter. And you know mm. as well as I do, you can't get a big blue stem that's a, mm. with a yeah. foot diameter crown that's one year old. That That's a 20-year-old plant that's been – basically hiding out in that forest that entire Suppressed. time until it was yeah. released. You know, these, these stories, I think, you know, for our listeners, because we, we often do talk about habitat restoration and really look back at historical significance of the area to, to make those restoration. Um, so you're working with the land, not against it. And then from there, you have the most productive landscape that matches your climate, your, your soils, and wildlife will thrive as a result of all that. You know, what you're talking about is just further... Um, you know, explanation and examples of guys, if it, it's oftentimes there, depending on, you know, the, the history of the land and what's been done. But, you know, 
this is not just an example of, oh, we've done this at Adams Farm. It, it's worked there. It's going to work anywhere. You know, you're seeing this. Other states are seeing this from Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, Georgia, the Carolinas, everything. It can work. And I yeah. think that's just further encouragement for people to, to go out there and do this stuff. Yeah, not only can it work, but, you know, we would maintain, I think many of our friends and partners and colleagues would too, that, you know, if, if given the choice, like, I hate to just tell so many stories, but I went down and was looking at a, a piece of land at the invitation of a, of a state park somewhere within our region. I'll just leave it at that. And, and the, the state park ranger said, hey, come down and take a look. We got this uh, former nursery that's now just covered up in fescue. He said, we'd like to kill the fescue and, and plant this in a, in a meadow mix of some type. So I get down there to this nursery and I'm looking at it. And I mean, the, the fescue is, is as thick as I've ever seen in any one spot. And sure enough, there's old nursery stock, Bradford pears, and, you know, old uh, greenhouses lying around and everything. And I said, look, I said, look over there at the edge of the woods. I said, man, you've got what appear to be old growth shortleaf pines. And then you step immediately into the woods, and it's just, just dense oak hickory forest and oak hickory pine with a heavy leaf litter on the ground. I said, uh, you've got sort of two options here for grass and restoration. I said, you could kill all this fescue and probably you're not going to have a seed bank intact that's worth anything in which case you're going to have to bring in seed which there is no local genotype seed source that exists for your region so you're going to have to bring in seed probably from that are not adapted to your soils from somewhere else i said but you could go in over there timber those trees selectively and probably make money on the harvest and you're going to see a massive and quick response from the seed and rootstock bank and I said, given the choice, man, if you can open up those woods over there with thinning and fire, you're going to have much better results and it's going to be much better for wildlife. You're going to be struggling to get this little plot of fescue land to the place where you want it. He said, I can tell you right now, this park ain't cutting a tree. And I realized right then and there that we had our, we're going to have our hands full in trying to get them to overcome the myth mm. of the squirrel, which is it's how they formed their thinking, no doubt. Yeah, no, it, it, that that right there was kind of an example, uh, if you will, in, in our typical line of work of, you know, a food plot comparison to just managing the timber itself and opening it up um, and, and doing, you know, TSI, you'll get production out of it. But if you want to put it in a food plot, you're going to have to do X, X and X and put in X, X and X money and time resources into it. And it it may or may not work. Yeah, and I still encourage him to get rid of that fescue and, and, sure. and do what he can to restore it. But but if he, you know, if given the choice of resources, you know, um, I agree with you. It, a lot of times timber management, you can you can accomplish what you need to accomplish. And that's that's just a message we need to spread to many more places of the East. Some, some amazing restoration efforts are going on right now doing exactly that. I have one question. We've got a couple more questions, but that that's perfectly into yeah. how can people support your work, Dwayne? Yeah, it's a great question, and we appreciate it. We we need support um, at multiple different levels. Uh, one is from an education and outreach perspective, which is one of our main programmatic priorities. Uh, we are trying to grow a community-based conservation movement across our 23 states. And so we need people in their own communities who may may desire to take a leadership role who might say, you know what, I have I have some knowledge, I have passion, I have work ethic, I have dedication, 
you know, I'm willing to give 10 hours or more of my time um, per week or per, per month to not only doing something myself, maybe it's going out and removing invasive species or collecting native seed, but it's uh, also working with and guiding others. We need people like that to be our volunteer stewards in cities across our southeastern region that we can work with who can then influence and work with others, basically be sort of like volunteer steward uh, and play leadership roles. We also um, very much because we're a startup conservation organization, we have obviously a lot of financial needs. And some of those are, are quite small. They range from anywhere from $300 or $30 all the way to $3 million. And so small scale donations are very urgently needed. Um, but because we're trying to do something which is really put grasslands on the map in the southeast and change the way people view the southern landscape, um, that kind of level of change requires a sustained effort that's hard to get from small donations alone. And so what we've been trying to do, and, and really the way SGI began in the first place, and your readers may, may be interested to know this, we were kind of born in Ironton, Missouri, if you will, in a small uh, hotel there on a, a crisp October weekend back in 2016. That's where the concept for SGI was started, is in that little hotel room. And the reason it was started is because we had given a, uh, we had had a symposium where some, some people from a foundation out of Washington, D.C. heard us speak. And then they realized that what we were speaking about was such an urgent conservation issue. They basically walked up and said, how can we help? Mm. And so they wanted to help us dream big and garner large scale philanthropic support from philanthropic foundations and corporations because we need to begin to put grasslands of the southeast and open landscapes of the southeast on equal footing with forest streams all of which are are hugely supported financially and so um, we're trying to garner big resources uh, in corporate sponsors and in philanthropy to begin to increase the pot basically not just for us but for all our partners in conservation across the southeastern region wow Absolutely. I, it's I, a it's a big chore, but it, you know, with with backing like that, support from people, so whether you can donate money or you're just like you said donating time or simply sharing this podcast, it helps spread the message and the education of what you guys are trying to do. It is, and you know, we're really proud of the fact that um, we we declared sort of that we officially launched SGI in January of 2018. And now here we are in July 2019, and, and just three months ago, um, we were awarded our first big grant from a corporate sponsor, and that's Google. So yeah. to go from just an idea in a hotel in Missouri, you know, in May, in October 2016, to having the support of Google, we're pretty we're pretty thrilled about that. That's Absolutely. awesome. That is incredible. I, and I think, I'm not sure if you mentioned it, but the website is segrasslands.org. That's right. Be sure to certainly check that out, and yeah. on uh, Facebook as well. Follow along on what they're doing. Yeah, that that's the, that's where I I really oh, yeah. take in the most on what you guys are up to. Videos, posts. Um, I do have one. I have one more question, and it might this might be the toughest question of the whole podcast. But this um, one, I've got like twenty more. <laughs> <laughs> it's if you had to pick a place to go and witness and see what it is you're talking about right now. Maybe your favorite place to just go, you know, from a diversity standpoint. Where is that located? 
not any, you know, obviously we're not asking people to go trespass or anything like yeah. that, but just a region of, of a state. You know, we don't have to give an address or anything, but just where would that be? Well, I've I've always been guilty of being too wordy and loquacious. So let me <laughs> give you let me give you two. Uh, one of which is for our, the the folks in your listening area who are kind of in the western part of the southeast. I would go to Cherokee or Flanagan Prairie natural areas, which is just east of Fort Smith, Arkansas, in the Arkansas River Valley. Um, as far as the southeastern go- region goes, those are two of the bigger prairie remnants that come to mind. They're each uh, a few hundred acres in size. And it's just so special, especially if you go out there in, in May and coneflowers are blooming. Um, I, would, I would definitely check that area out. The biodiversity is, is top notch. The other place I would go is literally one of the coolest places in eastern North America. It's called Roan Mountain, R-O-A-N. And uh, it's on the North Carolina-Tennessee border. It's at about 6,000 feet elevation. And it is a grassland that's been there well before or during at least the ice ages. It's been there for tens of thousands of years. And it is truly one of the most magical landscapes that you can experience in the southeast. Um, And in in both of those cases are types of old growth grasslands. I think that's a term I, Mm -hmm. I wish your listeners would go away with really thinking about what it means to be an old growth grassland. Those are two places you can go and see those. Incredible. Yeah. Probably a tough decision to make. Honey, <laughs> we're going to yeah. North Carolina. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, you know, one thing I've heard you talk about, and, and it's interesting, Matt and I have worked in this area, and, and it goes right with, you see road signs, and you see the land, and you drive through it, and you're like, boy, it's all rice and crops, and there's nothing real natural mm-hmm. about this area. And I'm talking about that part of eastern Arkansas um from little rock and stuttgart area to where you see roads that say entering prairie county I'll say and, prairie county it's the name of the and, whole county and you're like boy that's that's interesting all i see is crops that's one of uh, from what i understand grand prairie is the name of that region do you want to talk uh we've got a few minutes i'd love to hear you talk about that area yeah that area the grand prairie we're talking about is approximately 30 miles or so east of Little Rock, kind of sandwiched between Little Rock and Memphis. And um, it was an area that, according to 1830s land surveys, was about a half million acres of open prairie, mostly treeless prairie um, with some savannas along the border border zone. It's part of the Mississippi alluvial plain ecoregion. So a lot of people think about the Mississippi alluvial plain. They think about cypress and tupelo swamps. Uh, but this is sort of a slightly elevated, abandoned river terrace that, again, a half million acres. And it was perfectly flat, which makes it, uh, and it has a clay hard pan under the soil, uh, the top, top soil. And so as a result of that, when the spring rains would come, you would have essentially this, this lake of prairie, you know, uh, on the prairie. And uh, Thomas Nuttall, when he went in there, I think it was 1818 or maybe 1811, um, he, he went through there and described that he basically had to walk through water because the prairie was just covered with several inches of, of water at the time uh, during that spring. And then, though, uh, it would just completely bake and dry up and get super hot and parched. And it's that kind of alternating wet and dry, which kept a lot of trees from being able to take root. Uh, and and uh, it facilitated a lot of fires when it would get droughty and stuff. And so that area today went from being 500,000 acres 
And in 2017, there were 450 acres that remained. Let that set in for a second. 500,000 down to 450 acres. And then from 2017 to 2018, we went from 450 acres to 375 acres. So we lost some. I mean, we've lost an entire ecosystem by 99.99%. How is it defensible for us to still be losing large acreages like that in this day and age. And so the remnants that remain are often, you know, one of them is called the railroad prairie natural area. It's sandwiched between a highway and a railroad. It goes on for a few miles. There's 400 species of plants just in that 50 to 75 foot, five uh, foot wide right away. You know, there's monarch butterflies in that right away. There's all kinds of of species that, that uh, are of conservation concern there. And then you go down near Stuttgart and you go into this one prairie called Roth Prairie. It's a 40-acre block. And um, my buddy Theo Witzel and co-founder of SGI was walking through that prairie and he stepped on a rock and he's like, wait a minute, there are no rocks in eastern Arkansas. And he goes back and he reaches down and there's a, a small tor- turtle. He picks it up and it's an ornate box turtle, a prairie species. Wow. And at the time he found that, which was probably like 2015, that turtle hadn't been seen since like the early 1980s in that entire ecoregion. And uh, he says, man, I, I didn't have a camera. So he took the turtle and drove all the way an hour back to his office at Little Rock with turtle in hand. Huh. <laughs> Goes and gets his camera, drives the turtle back the hour back to the prairie, snaps a picture of it, and then sets the turtle back on the ground. And, and so we, we like to say that Rocky went to Little Rock. And mm-hmm. what's significant about that is that if, if Theo had to pick that turtle up and moved it, there's no way that turtle can get from that one prairie remnant to the next one, which is like five or six miles away, because it would have to travel through endless expanses of rice fields along its way. And so it's we isolated. have just totally removed the ability of a lot of these prairies to function, and we, we say that they're functionally extinct. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to say, obviously, when you're losing 99.9% of a landscape of uh, that significance, you know, this this conservation effort, you know, we're at a point, if you're losing that much, it is extremely significant to jump on and help. You know, yeah. you look at and c- compare that severity um, of destruction against other uh, species of concern that have, you know, let's say public backing or government backing to help support it and bring it back, restore it. But you're not really seeing that with these grasslands. And so that's basically the birth of your initiative, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. I think, you know, in the news you hear all the time about the rainforest is being cut down mm-hmm. and, and even out west they're cutting timber and, and it's kind of this huge negative. But right in front of our very eyes – we're losing a crucial part of our ecosystem and you're the only one saying anything right now, Dwayne. <laughs> well, you know, you, you said two things there that I, I think is a, at least one of the final messages I'd like to impart to you guys. You mentioned the cutting of the Amazon, uh, a cutting of rainforest. Yes. You also mentioned the cutting of timber in the American West. And, and those are two things that the American public has a big, well, not just the American public, but the mm. public in general yep. and across the, the, the globe has a perception about timber harvest, especially now in this day and age when we're increasingly more concerned about uh, climate change. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, 
a lot of focus right now going into things like carbon sequestration. And there was a paper that just came out, came out in science uh, just last week, in fact, uh, that I think it was called the, the global tree potential, something to that effect, basically where they were calculating uh, all the area available on land where you could, you could plant forest through afforestation. You could plant forests to, you know, to increase the amount of carbon that is sequestered from the atmosphere. And while I absolutely applaud the restoration of forests, the preservation of forests, uh, one of the things that we need to be super, super careful about, and this paper definitely acknowledges that we should not be planting forests in former grassland regions, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's exactly what's happening. Sure. That's exactly yeah. what's happening. And now a lot of corporations um, and a lot of people are jumping on the bandwagon that we need to just plant trees, plant trees, plant trees. We need to reduce burning, uh, including mm. prescribed fire, because it's putting carbon in the atmosphere in, in some cases, they say. And we need to minimize the amount of trees we cut down. But we're in this day and age where we've lost 95% of our savannas. The way to get those savannas back Cut them, baby. And all the diversity that depends on them is to cut some trees and to bring back burning. Yep. And we have this real uh, paradox on our hands where we've got to get ahead of the ball in terms of communi uh, uh, communicating about this to the mass public before this gets to a point to where we're going to go down this road to where people are really going to be arguing against cutting any trees and any burning. And, and I think it's a super slippery slope. For sure. Um, so this is uh, nowhere more apparent than the area just west of Washington, D.C. And we just talked about the Grand Prairies of Arkansas. Well, there's a Grand Prairie of northern Virginia, easternmost West Virginia, and Maryland. But that Grand Prairie disappeared in about 1730. And it was once open with bison. And today there's a big multi-corporation effort to go into that former Grand Prairie landscape, where I would almost bet you if you go there today, Meadow larks are still dotting throughout the, the cattle fields in those regions. But there's a big effort now uh, underway to begin to plant that extensively with forests. And I just think we have to be, we have to boil it back down to our history. You have to know what the history of that area was. And our conservation restoration efforts, I think, should involve just as much cultural history mm -hmm. as it should natural history. Without a doubt, I couldn't agree more on, on all those statements from, from the understanding of the slippery slope of cutting and burning um, to just the aspect of, of cultural significance. Um, cultural significance, as much as we may not be privy to and, and tough to research, ties in a lot with the ecological significance of areas. I think it's underestimated. It mm. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed this. Um, I know I did. Mm -hmm. um, man, I, and I've got so many more questions, but we're up on an hour. So we're going to have to have you come back on, I think, in the future sometime and, and talk more about what you guys have going on because this is such a – it's a little bit deeper than our normal – I mean, we talk mm -hmm. a lot about mm -hmm. the importance of understanding landscapes on a on a week-to-week -week basis, but this week we definitely talk about one of the biggest threats we're facing – and uh in our in our natural landscapes and so i'm i thank you so much um uh, for coming on Dwayne, sharing your story i encourage everyone to check out segrasslands.org and check out their facebook page what's the handle on the facebook page southeastern grasslands initiative or 
Yeah, if they just type in Southeastern Grasslands Initiative or SE Grasslands, they'll find us. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Well, let us know, Dwayne, how we can help. You know, get some messages out there. Um, we're fortunate to have some some loyal listeners every single week. And um, I know that they're going to just kind of take hold of this message, too, and follow along with your efforts. But uh, if there's anything that we can do, just let us know. We'd be happy to help. I appreciate the time, guys. Thank you for this opportunity. Y'all have a good day. Yeah.